Hi, I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up with a relentless wave of content between movies and TV. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. This week may feel like a crafty bit of internal self-promotion, but honestly, it's not meant to be. Or is it? The new Bravo drama Dirty John is based on the series of articles and runaway podcast success by Los Angeles Times reporter Christopher Gofford. The show tells the story of Orange County businesswoman Deborah Newell, played by Connie Britton, who falls fast for a handsome, charming, too-good-to-be-true anesthesiologist John Meehan, played by Eric Bana. Juno Temple and Julia Garner play Newell's daughters, and Jean Smart, her mother. As the relationship between Newell and Meehan deepens, something seems increasingly amiss with Meehan, leading to truly monstrous consequences. As adapted by showrunner Alexandra Cunningham, Dirty John, the television series, finds a fresh perspective on a story already told via two other mediums. By focusing attention on Britain's performance as Newell, the show attempts to give a previously overlooked POV its due. Times reporter Yvonne Villarreal recently published a story in which she spoke to Newell, the story's real-life subject, as well as Cunningham, Britton, and Bannon. Yvonne also sat down with Cunningham at our offices here in El Segundo to talk about this unusual true crime show. Let's listen in. Alex, thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Yvonne, I'm so happy to see you. I'm really sad. I don't have a distinctive voice like Christopher <laughs> Gofford. I don't think I do either, but we're going to make we're gonna do with what we have. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how this goes. <laughs> so I want to first start with how you discovered Dirty John. The story I remember you telling me involves procrastinating. Uh, where I do my best work and discover all the best things when I'm on deadline for a rewrite. So, of course, I'm on the internet. I usually go to long reads because that's 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 where all of my joy is. And I, I go like, to what? Felicity reruns. I like that you go to longreads.com. You know, that's a I, I never thought of that, but that could also serve me well. But I, I think it might have been the featured... Um, article on like the first long reads page and I was like what is this this is right up my alley and I had no idea there were six of them six articles and they were all accessible to me just by clicking so you know that day just disappeared just clicking clicking I mean and with the embedded video and the the photos and my mind just went wild and you know the funniest part about that given you know the conversation that we're having and why was remember seeing the first picture of Deborah Newell the selfie in the mirror in the dress with the hair and she looks beautiful and I thought you know whoever makes a television show out of this should cast Connie Britton because done. And somebody did that. Someone cast <laughs> Connie Britton. And, and they were a genius to do that because she is perfect. It's a good thing we're talking to that genius. So did you, when reading it, think to yourself, this is something that should be adapted? Or, I mean, how did, what did right. your thought process go? I mean, it it definitely is amazing in its original form. It is equally amazing in its transmogrified form of podcast. These things are wonderful and exist on their own. But yeah, I mean, there was I definitely sparked to the story and and frankly, you know, I'll be honest, I sparked to the idea of the fact that a woman hadn't told that story yet and and 
what was left to be told as a result of the woman's point of view in telling a story like that happening to a woman, especially through the prism of everything we're experiencing right now with Me Too, you know, for for just to encapsulate it, distill it to that, especially when it actually did come together that I was going to do it. And the first question I was asked by someone that you work with here at the LA Times was how was I or was I going to deal with the idea that there were a lot of commenters on the articles and commenters on the podcast talking about how stupid Deborah was. And I was like, well, <laughs> that was one of the things that I had thought idly at first, but then more consciously when I came on board that th that was a thing that I, that I don't agree with and that I wanted to address. So yeah, but I mean, the story itself beyond the larger societal ramifications. Uh, the story itself was just so captivating and breakneck, and it obviously has an ending that, you know, if it hadn't actually happened and I scripted it, people would probably call shenanigans on right. me. So, you know, that's that's very exciting always when, you know, I'm, I wasn't flipping the pages, I was hitting next, because yeah. that's what we do now. But, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you brought up the victim blaming. Um, what, what did you think of the sort of vitriol that was aimed at Deborah? And do you think that might have been different had this story been written by a woman or had a woman edited it or been involved in the narrative of it? I mean, it's impossible for me to say that. I, you know, I, I'm endlessly fascinated by your process and working in newspapers and I've, I've never had an editor. I could probably use one. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I don't know whether that's a thing that would have happened, but I definitely felt like, there were some things that I could bring to it just as a result of being a woman. I think Chris did a fantastic job of representing point of view and, you know, investigating the story and reporting the story. But I did feel like there was a, a little bit more that could be added uh, as far as this is a story that happened to a woman and why do women make specific decisions and how much does that have to do with conditioning and just making that all of that is there, but maybe giving a fuller picture of it. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what if it, whether that would have happened if there had been a female reporter or editor, but I, I definitely feel felt like there was a little bit of an opportunity. Well, crucial to this sort of taking off on the screen is finding the right actors, finding actors that can deliver that chemistry in a way that makes this all believable and in a way that plants the viewers inside. Um, so talk about the process of getting Connie and Eric on board with this. You know, because Connie had been in my head idly at first and then suddenly people called and said are you interested in doing dirty john i was like yes and then suddenly i meant I, I realized oh okay so now those decisions are all mine as opposed to someone should do that i happened to be on the phone with connie's agent about something completely different and i thought she was on 911 which she was i just thought that was a more long term contract that would limit her availability and I just kind of idly brought it up, 
you know, so Connie, 911. And he went, yeah, that's a one-year contract. Like, you know, that there's a obviously open for her to come back, but it's not, you know, a thing that's set in stone for the next however many years. And I went, huh, you know, <laughs> if she listens to podcasts, which it actually turned out she absolutely did not. Yeah. She had never heard a podcast before, but I didn't know that. And I said, you know, could you just pass this on to her and the articles if she's not a podcast person? Could you just kind of, you know, dump all this information in her lap and find out if she has any interest in even discussing it and she had a little free time it turned out and by the that time the next day she basically because it is such an amazing story obviously she completely sparked to it and was like okay what are we doing Mm -hmm. so that was among the easiest things i've ever done in my life and then eric was somebody who i've always wanted to work with and eric I'm going to say notoriously, but it's actually something that's completely admirable. I think a lot of his career choices have been made over the last however many years because he's based in Australia. He's a family man. He had small children. He wanted to be there for them. He did not want to sign on to things that were going to take him away for, you know, nine, ten months, a year at a time. A lot of times that happens with movies, especially big movies. And so he had very consciously sort of cherry picked his projects to to make it so that he could be there for his family. And now his his children are older teenagers, and mm-hmm. they came to visit us many times on the Jury John set. They are absolutely lovely human beings. Um, and, you know, so he's he's been there for his family. It was the right decision, and now his kids are starting to have their own lives, and he's just as good an actor and just as handsome as he used to be, so crazy like a fox, I guess. And uh, I had kind of never had a part to offer him that I felt like would fit the criteria that I had heard were his, Uh, you know, that I – the last show I had done had a villain part that I was like, I don't know how many episodes it is. They're not going to be consecutive episodes. You know, he's going to fly from Australia. And I don't think it's going to work, which he actually remembered when we first met. And he was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Why did you not offer that to me? And I was like, because you would have said no. So but so we sent him the podcast. I still didn't have a script. Incidentally, so this is unique in my career to be trying to get the lead actors, the two lead actor linchpins of a project to sign on without any indication of what the show is going to be like from a script. Uh, Again, a testament to the power of the story and the material as presented by Chris. And so Eric listened to the podcast. He happened to be in town promoting a movie that he had done with Forrest Whitaker. And I went and sat down with him and basically pitched to him how I would do it and pitched to him that there was a real opportunity. And Eric was very interested in doing that. And and it is a character that kind of plays to all of his strengths as an actor for those people who remember him from his very first movie, Chopper, which is not available on streaming. So it's anyone not. listening to this who is but able to fix of, that. The level of manipulation in that character. Yeah, but yeah. also humor mm-hmm. and just like crazy charm. And, you know, that 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 was I felt like when's he going to do a role like that again? And I felt like the potential for that was in this. And so I was super excited to offer it. And thank God he said yes. Who is John to you? Who is Deborah to you? Um, and talk about writing those characters and adding dimension to them. I'll start with Deborah, just because Deborah obviously is the emotional way into the story and the reason it happened in the first place. And, you know, 
in the process of writing this, I really have not that I didn't have respect for what she had been through after reading the articles and listening to the podcast, but just sort of, you know, putting Connie's and my version of her on her feet, like just the she's a person the heart of which I would like to have the, the, the kindness and the generosity and the, just the, the lack of cynicism and what some people might call naivete, which in, it really seems like just every moment that ticks by in our society, we despise that more in people. And it, it really is just such an emotional truth that I think a lot of us are afraid of that we would rather be known by what we hate than what we love by what we defend ourselves against rather than what we're open to. And at least she used to be a person who was tremendously open and just took people at face value, really did. I mean, a lot of people pay lip service to that idea, but Deborah really did it. And and her own children, even as in, in the podcast and in the articles, you know, would say like, they saw her being taken advantage of because of this. And it's, but it's not like they wanted her to change. They just wanted her to, to see it. But I don't think a, a person like that, if they see it, then they already are changing from the person that does that. Just her, you know, just sort of kindness and generosity of spirit is unfortunately a large reason why this story happened in the first place. But also, especially when I came to it, which is the articles are already out, the podcast is already out. She's already heard what millions of people have said about her without knowing her. And yet she's still out there plugging away, trying to get this story out there is so incredibly brave. Like just every troll in the universe has felt the need to pop up and give an opinion on this, which they're entitled to. And that's the world we live in now. But the idea that she just keeps telling this story, keeps trying to, you know, she's out there beating the drum of this is what coercive control looks like. This is a situation you might be in. Like if only one person hears this story and wakes up to something that's happening to them, it's worth it to her. I couldn't be that brave. I'd, because I yeah. think that gets lost. Like like we talked about earlier is people had a lot of judgment on her. But it's like this is a woman who was single mother, yep. had been divorced multiple times, yep. and – all she wanted was someone to love her. And when you are searching for that so hard, when it's something that finally seems to present itself, yeah. of course you're going to be like a little. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you if you have that element of need in you, despite how many trappings of success you already have, you know, and you think you've found it and not just found it. I mean, that you've hit the, you know, the mother load of it. This person is completely focused on you. You know, maybe there's been a void in your life of feeling like, you know, you're you're doing everything for other people and no one's doing anything for you, which, you know, speaking as a, a woman with a lot of responsibilities who's also a mother, we all have those days right, where we're right. just like, God, could somebody just – the dishwasher's right next to the sink. Like, are you kidding? Like, what, do I really have to say it again? And, you know, the, Deborah has this and unfortunately John, you know, he's very sensitive to, to the spaces in other people and what he can do to accommodate that in the most handsomely packaged way. And, yeah, and I just – 
I I think, and we even say this in the show, that somebody like that, that's what he did for Deborah. If he was focused on you, he'd pivot and fill the spaces for you in the way that worked for you, and you wouldn't see it till it was over either. So, you know, you're just lucky that the circumstances of your life did not lead you here, because if they did, then there'd be trolls on the internet talking about what a dumbass you are. So, But who else was John to you? Because, oh, yeah. Because it... Um, I think Eric said this to me where as as a master as he was at being a con artist, he was also clumsy and right. not that great at it. Yeah, I mean, th- that is kind of a trope of the woman in peril story is that the guy has just seen every ramification. He's got everything on lockdown. He's got the master plan that like you're not going to see until like the last 10 minutes right. when there's the, you know, and real people aren't like that, especially real people who have so many balls in the air. Like even though he didn't have a day job, this was his day job. You know, he's being how however many different people at the same time, that's, that's hard. I mean, it's, it's tricky to keep all that stuff balanced. And also it was important to me to sort of keep a lot of the decisions he made that seem sort of, like you say, clumsy to me. Like for instance, I would have thought that you would cultivate this woman's daughters, that you would almost be overly solicitous of them to get them on board with your whole thing. But we talked about this in the writer's room a lot and something that John sensed in Deborah or must have, I don't want to speak for her, but something that John must have sensed in Deborah, just given the way he behaved, because that's all we have is what did he do? And what he did was, you know, Tara showed up for Thanksgiving and he was nasty to her from the jump. And, you know, Veronica, you know, Jacqueline in the podcast, Veronica in the show that like the second she reacted to him, he reacted to her right back. I mean, he tried a little harder, but only when Deborah was watching, you know, initially. And and a lot of people were like, that just really seems like a miscalculation. And it's like, but was it or did he sense in Deborah that someone needed to stand up to her family on her behalf? Whether that was the right thing to do, whether that's a conscious choice you would have made. It obviously worked for a while. We kept using the word cleave that he kept because, you know, his pattern with her was they're jealous of you. Your daughters are jealous of you. Your family just wants your money. Your family wants you to die so they can have all your stuff, like just going on and on. And it it worked to a certain degree for a while. So there must have been some little tiny nagging feeling inside her that was like, yeah, yeah. yeah." And so for him to sort of stand in front of her with a flaming sword when her daughters are, you know, in the show at Thanksgiving, the fight between him and Tara, that he made a choice to defend Deborah against her daughter. And it did work. It didn't ultimately work for the long term, but it, it, it worked in the moment and there were a lot of decisions like that 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 worked that seemed crazy but i think we're judging them with the eye of we've seen a lot of stories like this and the guy didn't do that because the guy was written the guy wasn't real and this was a real guy and he he made choices and and yeah and that's part of what was fascinating to me was the things that he did that i would have thought if i was trying to be a con man i wouldn't do that and that's kind of what I liked about him because he's, you know, absolutely terrible, but he was a real person. And a lot of the things he was saying and doing, he must have believed 
on a certain level, like even if it's the sociopathy of I'm wearing this skin right now and the skin of this guy would love her. Yeah. Then he loved her, you know, like in that moment he loved her. So all of that was fascinating, the idea of being able to explore that. And I also said to Eric up front, I said, you know, I'm never going to try to explain why this guy did what he did because I don't care, frankly. I only care about the effect he had on all the people that he tried to destroy. I do kind of want to delve a little bit into why he might have chosen to, you know, be a grifter and a con man and to take advantage of people in this specific way, which was such a captivating part of the podcast, his father and his father's fascination with the idea that they were related to mafiosos and, you know, mobsters and the superiority of that and the predatory nature of how those men moved through the world. And wouldn't it be great to be that guy that I, I do think that that, took root to a certain extent, if only because maybe as a child, John just wanted his dad to love him because mm-hmm. that's what we all want. But uh, I did want to get that in because I really found that very fascinating. But other than that, like, you know, in terms of an origin story, right. I, I didn't care. Not vital. Yeah. Well, I want to cut to a clip of um, Tara confronting her mother <laughs> okay. with something she's found in the closet. And we see some of that tension um, between John and Tara. Tara? Tara, what are you doing? What are you doing? So he, he's, a, he's a doctor and a nurse, or he's just not a doctor? What's going on? You all right? She's fine. Can you just, can you just go? We are having a private conversation. Were you looking through that, or was she? She was. Can you just her. let us have a private conversation? Who told you you could do that? I was just looking into his stupid I box, okay? You weren't in here. Why were you in here, though, hon? You didn't belong in because here. Because I was trying to figure out if you were lying to me, which you were. Stop talking to your mom like that and lower your voice a little. Don't tell me how to talk to my mom. My mom and dad used to smack us, and I used to hate it. Shut up! taught me to not raise my voice to my parents. Wait, and never I, to I'm your daughter. Them. Another thing I wanted to ask you was... Chris Gofford was a writer on the series. Mm-hmm. He was in the writer's room. Yep. Um, talk about having him there. Talk about having access to all his reporting and not just from what he used in the series, but also I understand that um, afterwards a lot of people came forward after they read the story or listened right. to the podcast. So he had all of that additionally. Right. So talk about delving into all of that and having him there. Yeah, I mean, it was it it would it was always really great in the writers' room to kind of like I remember we were having a conversation once about uh, the crime scene uh-huh. um, of the after the ultimate confrontation, and Chris was like, "Oh yeah, I have all the pictures. I have all the pictures from the crime scene." And we were like, "What?" So you know, we just kind of all gathered around the laptop, wow. like you know, an old timey storytelling <laughs> where you gather around the campfire or whatever. We all clustered around the laptop, and we just clicked through these pictures and it was like you know pictures of his car and what was in his car like he had been living in his car at the time and it was just full of like old tacos and testosterone filled syringes and oh uh, you know the knife lying on the tarmac and you know just uh, it, it was amazing to kind of be like I wonder what that looked like and Chris goes you want to see like wow. it was just that was uh, that happened a lot where it would just be like I wonder you know what that conversation was like between you know, the first time that 
Detective Dennis Lucan in Ohio talk to John, and next thing you knew in your email, it, Chris would have sent you a document of basically everything that Detective Lucan told him. And so that was because I'm I'm always that person. Like when mm-hmm. I read a story that captivates me to this extent, I just want everything else I could possibly find. And uh, and Chris was basically like that in human form for me that it was just like do you have a timeline of you know like after John got out of print and next thing you know we're putting it up on cards in the hallway and yeah because how do you map it out it's a story that's so immense and like things zigzag how did you from the very beginning I was like you guys these bulletin boards that are in the hallways outside the writer's room I I actually need a chronology that is a genuine chronology of starting from you know day zero of what everything we know about John like you know born in the Bay Area blah 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 like just I need to be able to whenever I start sort of spinning out on like I don't know when this happened I want to be able to look out Mm -hmm. the door of the writer's room and look at that bulletin board and you know obviously Chris had spent way more time than anyone else at that point thinking about all of that and so that was um, fantastic for me because I just I I like to know what yep. really happened. I am I am that research-based kind of mm-hmm. writer where, like, I'm not going to start until I know, you know, all the parameters, especially for something like this, that did actually mm-hmm. happen. What does it mean to you to be thinking about this story or this brand or type of manipulation and coercion right now? Um, I mean, I think it's fantastic that we're even having these conversations. I, you know, for me, it's too early to know the kind mm-hmm. of effect they're going to have. And I, I, I do think some people are choosing to entrench as a result of how much we're talking about it. Um, but, you know, I, I'm happy to be bringing these things up and not being dismissed immediately or being told I'm, you know, bringing the room down or whatever. Bring it down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That that I can say things and have people go, yeah, as opposed to being like, Ooh, and now the atmosphere is uncomfortable. That's a step forward, you know, that, that I, that I'll take, you know, it's beyond that. It's really awesome to know that you can tell a story like this and have, people be ready to hear it on every level, the, you know, studio network level, the in general out there in the world, as opposed to having it kind of be slotted into a niche because it is going to be dealing with that, that, that it can still have a wide audience and not kind of be tucked away as like something that should have been on, you know, a women's network that no longer exists. Depicting someone getting swept off her feet. Yes. Yeah. What went into that? Like what, what went into sort of thinking what it was for Deborah that swept her off her feet, right? Which might be different from what might sweep you off your I, feet. I mean, yeah, exactly. I feel like we talked about that a lot because, uh, you know, for Deborah, she very specifically kind of name checked a lot of the stuff that John did for her. Where I'm like, ooh, really? <laughs> like where it's like, I don't want him to carry my purse everywhere. I don't want him to go to the doctor with me. Like there was a lot, but you know, it was again all about what is it that makes her feel like a queen versus what make what might make you or I feel like a queen and it definitely was that full service you know what what do you need I'm gonna do it I'm gonna anticipate your every desire like that was what she was looking for and you know I think several times in the podcast she said like he treated me like I was the only person in the world which again wouldn't work for me might not work for you but that was definitely what she was looking for and that's what he 
he did. And so, you know, we did want viewers to kind of get caught up in that whirlwind of romance, which for her, that's what love looks like, is the constant attention and the constant deference and and the constant presence. That's what she wanted and that's what she got. And so in the pilot, we wanted people to be carried away in the way that she was by him because we know that it worked. We're going to play a clip where the sweeping off the feet is starting to happen with the first dates. Mostly I worked at the hospital MSF set up in Kiara. My first month, I was the only anesthesiologist. Oh. We did 90 surgeries. Wow. You know, mostly I'm happy I went. Oh, yes. Oh, it's wonderful and, and heroic. You're doing it again. What? We're supposed to be talking about you. Not oh, our kids, not my job. Oh, you're so much more interesting. Not to me. You're an artist, a designer. Come on, tell me, who's your hero? Who, who's someone you admire? You know, some people, when they heard it was going to be adapted for TV, were excited. Some people, when they found out it was going to be at Bravo, had all these ideas of what that meant. You know, Bravo's largely associated with reality TV, stuff like Vanderpump Rules and Real Housewives, <laughs> which I eat up. Um, I was going to say, I mean, a lot of people <laughs> like those things that Bravo's people. associated with. But talk about sort of um, being a show that's trying to help establish Bravo as something more than that. Right. I mean, when I found out that Bravo was interested in doing it, you know, that they were they, – they really wanted to – they had had scripted shows before but that they kind of wanted to make a, a bigger play. I mean I've seen those other shows that yeah. are great. You know, they wanted to make a slightly more high-profile play. I actually thought it was really smart of them to be going after material like this that – because like you said, they have a brand. It's a very successful brand. They do not want to alienate the audience of that brand, and why would you? Because it 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 stretches across all you know socioeconomic levels and is super popular and successful. And uh, many of my friends and I've watched Bravo, and you know, they wanted to make sure that there was something that kind of dovetailed with what they knew people are already interested in on the network, but that could go to a different emotional place and and kind of, you know, blow certain aspects of the brand outward. And so that really seemed like knowing that, that we would be on the same page about what it is that we were all responding to in the material and that they, they loved it for the same reasons that I loved it. And, you know, a, a lot of times you set off when you're making shows, cause it's not my first show yeah. and you're very excited about something and you connect to it for a specific thematic reason. And you have all kinds of great ideas about what you're going to do with it. And then either the place it ends up, they never understand what it is that you are going for. And it's a constant, battle and then the show becomes neither fish nor fowl because you wanted a certain thing and they fought you on it all the way and then the show just kind of is a thing that's what neither of you wanted or you know they they seem to get what you're going for in the beginning and then once you're entrenched their responses become a thing where you go wait a minute 
we're right. Did they think that's what we were doing? That's right. not what we're doing. What do we do now? So to to be with people who were like, we love it because of this. And I was like, I love it because of that. So this is what I'm going to do with it. And they were like, that sounds great. Was really, you know, that that freed us up to kind of go to places that we wanted to go while still honoring the original material. And so, uh, yes, I know that some people react to the Bravo of it all, but, you know, they're reacting to Bravo because they know what Bravo is and they know that Bravo is super successful and that a lot of people watch it and then a lot of people who don't admit they watch it also watch it. So, and I'm with Shonda Rhimes. I don't think there are any guilty pleasures. I just think pleasures are pleasures. Yes. And I don't apologize for anything I like. And so I'm glad to be at Bravo it's because kill it's you. a, yeah. yeah. Bravo is appointment television in an era where very few things are appointment television and you cannot discount that and you you got to give them all the credit in the world. Well, Alex, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you for having Pleasure me. Pleasure in you. the place where it all began. Place where it all began. Thank you. Thank you.